We are this morning finishing our study in the book of Micah. I've really enjoyed just going through these minor prophets. And Micah, again, the, the scope of the things he covers is incredible. We've said already that he's from this town near the Philistine city of Garth, known as Morasheth Garth. And it was just kind of southwest of Jerusalem. You can see there on the map uh, the location. And we've already seen these incredible prophecies. And whilst this was all going on, we have the kings, um, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, who were the ones that were ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. So it's leading up to and just following on from the time that the northern kingdom goes into captivity. And we've seen already the impact of the teaching by Micah as we read in Jeremiah. We'll come look at that in scripture again in a second. But as we mentioned last week, Micah was preaching in the countryside whilst Isaiah was preaching in the court. They were both the contemporaries at the same time speaking to the nation. Isaiah out in the country speaking to these towns, these villages that are around about. And Isaiah in this position of speaking at the court in Jerusalem. Hosea was up north preaching in Israel at the same time. And Micah prophesied concerning Samaria, of course, the northern capital, and Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. But his real burden is, of course, for Judah. It's the area that he's from. You know, and we said last week again that the times were difficult. Oppression was just rife in the land. And this is one of the things that we've seen God addressing through Micah. You know, both inside there were problems, inside the walls of the cities and the towns, and outside they had this constant threat of attack from enemies, and particularly the Assyrian threat was getting stronger and greater the whole time. You know, and every group of people, every class of people were not were involved in this uh, corruption that was being brought in by the, the princes, the priests, the people, the leaders of the nation were bringing these things in. And everybody was getting caught up in this. It's very much like the world in which we live today. And Micah, through his preaching and teaching, really makes them uncomfortable. And he shows that every cruel act that they were committing was really an insult to their creator God, the God that loved everybody. The God has said that we should love the Lord our God, but we should also love our fellow men. Of course, Micah makes it clear that this is not acceptable. And certainly the conduct by the rulers of the people was something that God was not going to sit idly by and ignore. Incredibly, people had carried on with their religious observance. They were still trying to worship God. It made them kind of feel warm and fuzzy. You know, it's, a lot of people, that's all religion is to them. A lot of people go to church because it makes them feel good about themselves. And it was the same thing. And Micah really just pulls the rug out from under that and just shows the stupidity of that notion. It was just hypocritical to speak about a God and then deny and, and not worship that God and worship idols and get involved in all the things they were involved in. And of course, Israel up north had not heeded the warning of the prophets that had come to them. And Micah's also been prophesying to those at the beginning of the book. We saw that. And the northern kingdom were captured, taken by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., But Judah does respond under Hezekiah to the preaching of Micah. So although these things are going on, there is a revival. And it should give us great hope. You know, we've been praying this morning for a revival in this country. Well, Micah saw something of that. As a result of his preaching and calling people back to 
God, there was a response. And as we've seen a number of times, we read again from Jeremiah, Micah, the Morisite, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah. And he goes on, if you look at the bottom, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them because they turned from their sin. They besought the Lord, is what we're told. Hezekiah specifically is the king of the nation. You know, it's possible to see these changes. And this is a great book that should remind us that it is worth the effort of praying and speaking to all those that we can. For those of you that have the stirring in your heart to do so, write to politicians, write to whoever you feel appropriate to write to, because these things do make a difference. Micah is proof of that. And it may only postpone the judgment, but at least it gives opportunity for more to be saved during that time. We've said already that the book is kind of naturally split into these three sections. The first two chapters, it begins with the hear ye all you people. The second section, chapters three through five, it's here I pray you, O heads of Jacob. It really is focused very much on the leadership, but then goes on to this incredible view of the Christ millennial kingdom, of what is coming. And now these last two chapters, chapters six and seven, it's hear ye now what the Lord saith. You know, we, we live in a world where there's so many opinions. Everybody's got an opinion. But this is really what matters. It's God's opinion. And we're going to see very much kind of Israel placed in kind of a courtroom scenario. I don't know how many of you like courtroom dramas. I like courtroom dramas. I like the intrigue. I like trying to figure out who did what. And, you know, when you hear these kind of statements and you have to try to analyze whether that was right or this is right. And, you know, well, this is exactly what we're going to see now in Micah. And then Micah's going to go on from there, lamenting over the nation, but then ending, as so many of these prophets do, with a promise of what is coming and the blessings. The fact that God is faithful to fulfill the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's jump into chapter 6 and we read, Hear ye, so that's that here, that's that kind of marker. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. So you've got to imagine it's like in a courtroom setting, and the Lord is calling the mountains to testify. Now, Barnes makes this, he said, if you will not hear the rebuke of man, hear now at the last the word of God. It's as if the Micah has said his bit, and they've not responded And now God's voice is going to be thundering through to the nation. And it is, as I say, going to to this courtroom scenario. And the mountains here is kind of called to be kind of a witness. The mountains, of course, have endured. You know, we think of the mountains of always being there. That's not actually the case, of course, from Psalms 104. We know that the mountains rose and the valleys sank at the time of the flood. The world's geography changed dramatically at that point. And ultimately, we're also told that the mountains are going to flee away and that there will be one principal mountain, which will be Jerusalem. And all the nations of the world will go up to it. It's something the world would laugh and and scoff at. Well, they'll see. We can wait patiently. They'll find out. But the mountains, of course, you know, they have been there for a long time and they've witnessed so many things. And so now the mountains are called effectively to, to testify that Israel are guilty. And then God says this, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? 
testify against me. So, so God is kind of standing there now, this, this prosecution. Saying, Lord, saying to, the, to the nation of Israel, to Judah, you know, in what way have I wearied you? How have I been unfair? You know, testify. If you've got something to say, now's the time to say it. He says, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So this is like the case for the prosecution now gets going. And God will make the case Israel has absolutely no cause to abandon him. I said a little while ago this morning about in the book of Numbers how in a similar kind of scenario, God challenges the nation on the same basis. I led you out of Egypt. I provided for you through this time in the wilderness. And then they refused to go into the promised land under Joshua because there were giants there. And there were literally giants there. We believe very much that's the case from what Scripture teaches us. And historical evidence supports that. Yeah, it really was a scary time for Israel. But God was saying, look what I've done for you. Why can you not trust me now? Why is it now that you're saying, well, Lord, I trust everything you've done up to this point, but I'm not sure about going forward. But isn't that the same as all of us? But this is the case that God is saying. You know, look what I've done for you. I redeemed them from Egypt with this strong arm and established strong leaders to lead and care for them. Of course, Moses, Aaron, Miriam. And the nation had been led and directed, and God had seen to the fact that everything they needed was provided for them. Verse 5 goes on, Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted. And what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. And really, the, the statement now is, even when Balaam wanted to curse God, God is saying to the people, remember what happened? Remember now what Balak asked for? Balak wanted to hire Balaam to come and curse Israel. Now, you know the situation with Balaam, that God says, don't go. So he says, okay, Lord. Then he gets up in the morning and goes anyway. And then he kind of tries to seek permission for it. God's not particularly pleased with him. And we have the incident with the donkey and so on that speaks to Balaam and kind of, God allows Balaam to go eventually. But says, you must only speak the things that I tell you to speak. God is reminding Israel of this now. That even in that scenario, God had still turned this whole scenario around to be for their blessing and for their good. And Balaam ended up, ends up pronouncing blessing over them. And this is so incredible that I can't help but just, just go through this quickly because it, it really is wonderful. We read this in Numbers 22. Verse 41 onwards. And it came to pass on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. So this is typically where they worshipped on the top of the hills and mountains and so on. That thence he might see, notice this, he wanted to show him the uttermost part of the people. So he brings Balaam, Balak brings Balaam up to the top of the hill so they can look down on the camp of Israel. Have you never seen this before? This is incredible because the camp of Israel was arranged around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the center and the, the sons of Aaron, uh, the, uh, the Korathites, the Gershonites, and Merarites were all based around the tabernacle. That's where they camped and then Moses and the priests as well. So these were the Levites in the center and the nation then was to camp around the outside of that. And so as we look at it to Judah, typically uh, we're camping on one side. Now, because of the information that they were told, they were given very specific instructions as to how they were to camp. They weren't to camp in the areas 
that were southeast, northeast, southwest, northwest, etc. Because they had to only camp in the, in the, like the cardinal points of the compass. That was the instruction they were given. So however wide the camp of the Levites was would be the width of their own camp, and then they would spread out moving away from the center. And so we have this arrangement of the camps around the tabernacle that was in the center. This is how God had told them in the book of Numbers, the first few chapters of the book of Numbers, how they were to camp. Now the incredible thing is that when Balak takes Balaam up to the top of this high hill and he looks down on the camp, This is the view he would have seen. And as you can see, it falls incredibly across, right at the center of this encampment. God had said in Exodus 25, verse 8, that he would dwell among them. And once again, as you look at this, laid out on the ground, you have the tribe of Judah. Their standard was a lion, the tribe of Reuben. Their standard was not, you know, typically a flag type thing, you know, the standard. The tribe of Ephraim was a man, and the tribe of Dan, an eagle. Now, with each of these tribes, they had another two tribes with them as they were camped around. So with the three tribes camped on each of these kind of sides, as it were. But it's interesting that the principal tribes that are listed there, Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan, all had these tribal standards. What's fascinating is those are the same Faces that appear on the cherubim in heaven, these these creatures that we see before the throne that are described in the book of Ezekiel, they're also, in a sense, the same message that is conveyed in the Gospels. Of course, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, very, very Jewish in its focus. Mark is the only gospel that doesn't have a genealogy. And it presents Jesus as a servant, an ox, a beast of burden, if you like. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. And then John presents eagle as the son of God. presents Jesus as the, the son of God, as if, like an eagle soaring above. It's just incredible. The picture of Jesus we have, even within the camp of Israel, Revelation 4-7 again speaks of those four faces of the cherubim around the throne of God. Interestingly, the name Judah means praise. Ephraim means fruitful. Reuben means affliction. And Dan means judged. Interesting, isn't it? All of those things speak of Jesus. So we just carry on with this prophecy of Balaam. And he took up this parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram, out of the mountains of the east, saying, come, curse be Jacob, and come, defy Israel. Uh, And Balak's probably kind of getting ready. This is exciting. This is exactly what he wants to hear. And then Balaam says, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord has not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Firstly, Balaam is saying, I'm looking down, I'm seeing this people. He sees this cross-shaped camp that's before him. But notice, there's a number of prophecies, seven actually, at least. The first prophecy here is that Israel are going to dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations. Adam Clark in his commentary says this, they shall ever be preserved as a distinct nation. This prophecy has literally been fulfilled through a period of 3,300 years to the present day. This is truly astonishing. 
Israel have not been absorbed into the other nations. You think of all those other ancient nations, the Hittites. Have you ever met a Hittite? No, nor will you. And all the other nations that we read about in Scripture, they've all got intermingled with other groups, with other, other people groups. Israel have remained separate. The fact that they would be not reckoned among the nations. Israel are the only member nation of the UN that are not permitted to chair the Security Council. They're the only democracy in the Middle East, which makes it bizarre. But they're also not recognized on any Arab map. Balaam goes on and says, Who can count the dust of Jacob and number the fourth part of Israel? You can't even number a quarter of them. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like here. So the second prophecy here is that Israel are going to be without number. That's exactly what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. The third prophecy is that Israel's end will be in blessing, which is what all these minor prophets have been telling us as we've been going through. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shadow of a king is among them. God has brought them out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Notice his statement that he's not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Now, of course, we're reading a minor prophet that's telling us all about the iniquity in Jacob. And yet, as far as the world is concerned, God is looking upon Israel as his chosen people. They have never ceased to be his chosen people. And yes, God is judging them for their sin. But as far as the outside is concerned, the outside world... God is saying, they are mine. I have chosen them. And he's watching over and protecting them. Psalm 32 verse 2 says, Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity. Notice also the statement there, by the way. God has brought them out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. And I have to just mention this, that the unicorn is not one of these kind of like nice little white horse with a fuzzy rainbow mane. That's the picture that we have. That's a Disney unicorn. That's not the biblical unicorn. This is something that's really strong. Think of something like a triceratops. Okay, okay, triceratops has three horns, I get it. But it's it's something like that, a really strong, powerful beast. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. You, You can't put a spell on Israel. You can't curse Israel, is what it's being said. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what has God wrought? You know, look what God has done. We'll make some comments about that in a second. Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift himself up, uh, lift himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. Israel stand as a testimony to God's sovereignty. This is what's being stated here. So I'll read you a couple of quotes in a book called uh, Reluctant Witness by uh, Stephen Haynes. He says this, The survival of the Jewish people is the greatest proof of the existence of Almighty God. If there were no God in heaven, there would not be one Jewish person on the earth. From the same book, he quotes this, Queen Victoria once posed the question to her Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli. She asked, Can you give me one verse from the Bible that proves there is a God? He thought for a moment and responded, I can give you the answer in just one word. What is it? She wanted to know. Disraeli replied, you're due, your majesty, your majesty. An eminent eminent man once said, the universal dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, their unexampled sufferings and their marvelous preservation 
would be enough to establish the truth of the scriptures if all other evidence was cast into the sea. When people talk about wanting evidence, just look at the Jewish nation and their preservation and what God has done with them. David Torrance made this comment. He said, the very existence of the Jews in history together with all that has happened to them in their long turbulent history is proof that there is a God present and active through his Holy Spirit in history. By all normal laws of geography, history, and ethnography, they ought as a distinct race to have disappeared long ago. He goes on and says, despite wars, persecutions, and repeated attempts to obliterate them, they have kept their peculiar identity. They have remained a people apart from the other nations of the world, a testimony to the preserving hand of God. Quoting from Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Going back to the prophecy that Balaam gives, Balak said unto Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. In other words, if you can't say anything bad about them, don't say anything. Well, Balaam's on a roll now. He says, Balaam answered and said unto Balak, told not I thee saying, all that the Lord speaketh, that I must do. And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness looking out across the camp. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents, looking down on the camp, according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up this parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, has said, and the man whose eyes are open has said, he has said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into trance and having his eyes open, how goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel, as the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of a lane aloes, or wood aloes is the idea, which the Lord has planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, one of the kings at that time, who had a great kingdom, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So the fourth prophecy here is Israel's descendants are going to be in many waters. They'll be in many lands. And we know that's been fulfilled. We speak of the wandering Jew, but Jews are found in almost every country in the world. The fifth prophecy, Israel are destined to have a king higher than the nations. God brought him forth out of Egypt. Has uh, sorry, He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies. And he shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. So the sixth prophecy here is Israel are going to be victorious over their enemies. And then finally, that the blessing and cursing that we read of, it's spoken of here, is promised to the nations. And that's exactly what we find in Matthew 25 of what's coming. So, Micah uses this example effectively to say, remember what Balaam has said. Remember the the prophecies and the promises that were given to you as a nation. And God is pleading with the people now saying, think about your God. As we go on, Adam Clark's commentary says this, now the people as defendants appear, but instead of vindicating themselves or attempting to dispute what has been alleged against them, they seem at once to plead guilty. And now anxiously inquire, how they shall appease the wrath of the judge, how they shall make atonement for the sins already committed. It's as if the people realize immediately, as God presents this to them, yeah, God had given us all these promises, and we're guilty. 
And so we read this, verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The prayer is, what can we do to atone for our sin? The Living Bible paraphrase puts it like this. How can we make up to you for what we've done, you ask? How shall we bow before the Lord with offerings of yearling calves? Oh no, for if you offered him thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of olive oil, would that please him? Would he be satisfied? If you sacrifice your oldest child, would that make him glad? Then would he forgive your sins? Of course not. Do you want to read this by another commentator, Gleason Archie? He said this, just to get the context here. He said, it would be a gross misinterpretation of this verse, a violent wrenching the text out of his context, to construe this as a mere pronouncement of the whole point of religion is a virtuous life, without the need of atonement or a faith in God's revealed word. Okay, I'll put this in here. It's important that we understand that this isn't a verse that's saying there's no point in offering sacrifices. There's no point in, in doing things and stuff like that. You know, because the Torah, the the, 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 the First five books of the Bible state very clearly God's rules, God's laws. And Jesus said very clearly that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. There's a lot of instruction and wisdom and sensible um, uh, edicts that God has given to his people. So it's not to say that those things don't matter. But without the relationship with God, there's no point. Then we come on to this verse, one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Verse 8 of chapter 6 of Micah. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Now in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, we read this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is Solomon's little summary of life. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, let us hear the conclusion. And he says, fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And there's a similarity in these statements. You see, first of all, God through his word has revealed to us the duty of man. And here it is laid out in possibly one of the clearest statements we have. And it's to be transformed to his likeness. Notice what it says, that we are required to do justly. To love mercy. You see, God is a God that is just and a God that is merciful. He calls us to be like him. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4, it says there that we are to ascribe greatness into our God. He is a rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth without injustice, just and right is he. Psalm 119 Adds to that, it says, thy judgments are good. Thy judgments are right. Whatever God does is just, it's true, it's right. Everything God does is just. And he calls man to be like that. You see, remember, we were made in the image and the likeness of God. Yes, sin has come in and caused a problem, but God has dealt with sin through Jesus Christ. And God calls right from the beginning of Scripture, for us to walk with him. Exodus 20 verse 6, 
We read there that God shows mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. It's just, the idea is to thousands of generations. Psalm 118 states very clearly, his mercy endures forever. Five times, five specifically in scriptures, always seems to be related to grace. Because of his goodness, because of his love for us. His mercy endures forever. And by the way, just to note, that's often in modern translations translated as love. The Hebrew word for love, you're probably familiar, is a harb. That's not the word that's here. It's not, it's not right to, to really translate that word as love. It's not. It's mercy. And there is a distinct difference between the two. You see, God's mercy is consistent. It's never changing. And we should thank him for that. For eternity, we will thank God that his mercy endures forever. Mercy encapsulates God's patience, his kindness. Yes, indeed, his love, but also gentleness and so on. Also, Chambers makes this comment. He said, it was required of Adam, the federal head of the human race, that he should turn his natural life into a spiritual life by obedience. That's what God intended for Adam right from the start. That is, he was to have dominion over the life in the air and in the earth and in the sea, but he was not to have dominion over himself. God was to have dominion over him. And as he obeyed God, his natural life will be turned into a spiritual life. That was God's ideal plan. Adam represented what Jesus Christ represents. It is the whole human race. And if Adam had obeyed and transformed his innocence into holiness by a series of moral choices, the transfiguration of the human race would have happened in due course. But Adam disobeyed, and there entered in the disposition of sin, the disposition of self-realization. I am my own God. This disposition may work out in 101 different ways, in decorous morality or indecorous immorality, but it has the one basis, my claim to my right to myself. This is the problem. This is the root of all the issues we have, is our claim to run to rule our own life. This is what this verse in Micah is challenging. Oswald Chambers continues, he says, that disposition was never in our Lord. Self-will, self-assertiveness, Self-seeking were never in him. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. He didn't come to do his own will. There are a number of times Jesus no doubt could have acted according to his own will. He didn't. He only did what his Father gave him. He only did that which was in obedience to his Father. If Jesus did that, see how important it is that we learn the same thing. See, Jesus came just like Adam came. Sinless. Initially for Adam, he fell, but Jesus remained sinless. And Jesus did turn that innocence to obedience to his moral choices. And we get to that point in Jesus' life, the transfiguration. And as a number of commentators have said before, from that point, Jesus could have just gone back to heaven, proving that it was possible. But he didn't. He came back. Because if Jesus had gone back to heaven from the Mount of Transfiguration, he would have gone alone. But by coming back down to the demon-possessed valley below, by giving his life, he was able to take a multitude. He was the firstborn among many brethren. 
Oswald Chambers concludes, it says, when we become rightly related to God, we are not simply put back into the relationship Adam was in, but into a relationship Adam was never in. We are put into the body of Christ, and then God does not shield us from any of the requirements of sons. We have the notion at first that when we are saved and sanctified by God's supernatural grace, he does not require us to do anything. But it is only then that he begins to require anything of us. And what is it that God requires of us? It's that we do justly, we love mercy, and we walk humbly with God. Three things. Firstly, our internal life. Because that's really what the whole doing justly is all about. It's about the intents of the heart. It speaks about our motives. That's our internal life. And then our external life. Mercy speaks very much of our actions, the things that we show to others by the things we do. And then finally, our spiritual life. Walking humbly with God. And that probably is the hardest one on the list, to walk with God. All through Scripture, there is that call to walk with God. We're told in Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of sinful nature. It's the ideal, it's the goal of every believer, but how do we do it? How are we to do this when we're constantly wrestling against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, God has given us a roadmap a how-to guide. You may not be surprised to find that it's found in Psalm 119. God in that psalm has given us the way of walking in the way. It starts, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with a whole heart. It speaks of double blessing for walking with God. We then read on. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. And then this statement that God has commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. What is it God requires of us? That we walk in the way, that we walk with him. He's commanded that we keep his precepts diligently. But then the psalmist goes on. And there's this reality check. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. The acknowledgement that that's not our experience, that's not the reality. You know, from the Garden of Eden, from the moment Adam and Eve were cast out, sin had dominion over them. And the psalmist says, oh, that my ways is pleading almost with God. Just almost like make me a robot. Have you ever wished that God would just take away the possibility of sin? And yet he doesn't because he gives us that free choice. Because he says, then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. We wouldn't be ashamed if we could just walk in the way, in a way that's pleasing to God. But there's this statement. Looking forward to the end of the journey, which is 176 verses later. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. You see, God has begun a good work in us and he will continue it. And there's that statement of hope there. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. Lord, on this journey, don't give up on me. Spurgeon said that Psalm 119 is an utterance of spiritual life. And again, it begins by stating the objective and the goal of a follower of Christ, namely to be conformed into his likeness, but then goes on to travel with us through life's journeys, through the ups, the downs, those moments of rejoicing, those times of failure and doubt. And you know, the psalm really comes from a heart that wants to see you be victorious. 
to truly walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 9 of Micah, we carry on. The Lord's voice cries unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who has appointed it? Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the scant measure that is abominable? See, the lawsuit, as it were, continues in this verse as we go on. And the commentator said this, The prosecution is resumed with an appeal, this time not to the mouths of the hills, but to the populace, to all the people. And he goes on, Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with a bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So now in contrast to what God requires, the wealthy leaders of the nation had actually acted unjustly, without mercy, and they hadn't walked with their God. They walked according to their own desires. There's a real contrast between those two sections in this chapter. Therefore also will I make the sick, or make thee sick in smiting thee and in making thee desolate because of thy sins. Thou shalt eat but not be satisfied, and the casting down shall be in the midst of thee. And thou shalt take hold but shall not deliver, and that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. So all the labor, all the work of their hands is going to come to nothing. And seeking to be satisfied, they will become empty. And this is exactly what Galatians 6 verse 8 tells us. Sowing to the flesh reaps corruption. Jesus, in contrast, said, seek first the kingdom of God. And then we have like a little throwback historically. Micah says, For the statues of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab. Now these are two kings previously in the northern kingdom. Omri was a wicked king, really bad king. And it got even worse because his son Ahab was even worse. And Ahab is the one whom Elijah confronts. You have the situation on Mount Carmel and so on. And it says, You walk in their counsels that I should make thee a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof are hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. See, Ahab and Omri had led the nation further into idolatry and sin, and now Judah had embraced this level of depravity too. So just as with Israel, God is saying Judah will now be judged. Going to the last chapter, woe is me, for I was when they had gathered the summer fruits and the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among them, among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. Albert Barnes again said this, As the early fig of excellent flavor cannot be found in the advanced season of summer, or a choice cluster of grapes after the vintage, so neither can the good and upright man be discovered by searching in Israel. It's like saying, you know, you're getting to the autumn and you're looking for that first ripe, you know, bunch of grapes that's nice and, and, and tastes wonderful and produces that vintage drink with wine and so on. It's like you can't find that at the end of the year. It's too late. And it's saying by looking in Jerusalem and looking in Israel, you're not going to find a good man. that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asks, 
And the judge asked for a reward. So that they, they could be bought. Justice, so-called, could be bought at a price. And, and the great man, and the answer is his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. And the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Speaking of what is coming, these were just unjust, wicked people just exhibiting cruelty. And again, this corruption and dishonesty had just pervaded the entire nation now, and judgment is at hand. Trust ye not in a friend. This is how bad things have got. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. You know, he's speaking of kind of an intimate relationship there, but saying, you know, don't even tell somebody you love, you know, how you feel, your secrets. Certainly, when you, the idea is you don't speak about God because somebody's going to ridicule you. You don't know you do that. For the son dishonors the father, the daughter riseth against the mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies are the men of his own house. And that may ring familiar. I mean, the idea is even within families, dishonesty, deceit, were rampant. It should sound familiar because it's exactly what Jesus quotes from. Jesus quotes from this passage in Matthew 10. He says, And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Now, specifically, it's speaking of Israel, but interesting, isn't it, that we live in a world where we have children raising up, rising up against their parents, taking them to court, all these kind of bizarre things in today's world. In verse 34 of Matthew 10, it goes on. It says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. This is what Jesus quotes. You see, truth brings division. Solomon said that that which has already been and that which is to be has already been. So in other words, we just see repeat a rerun of history. And as it was in Micah's day, so Jesus is saying it was exactly the same in his day. And of course, these things in ours. Now, in the midst of his lamentation, Micah now lifts his head and declares. And I, we said earlier that that verse we read is one of the greatest in Scripture. I think this comes close. Micah 7, 7. It's an easy one to remember. All the sevens. Micah chapter 7, verse 7. Therefore, so again, just Micah lamenting the situation. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What a promise. In all of this, all that's going on around him, not sure what's going to happen with his nation. Knowing the threat of the Assyrians, the Babylonians are, are getting stronger. God has spoken of judgment to come, as had the other prophets. But Micah says this, therefore I will look unto the Lord. And those three words that I find so difficult, but the Lord is really teaching me, I will wait. But notice it's not just three words, because it goes on. It's not just waiting. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. It is an incredible promise, but of course, do we believe it? Well, consider Abraham. 
What a life Abraham lived. So many challenges of faith. You know, and he failed some of them. God had brought him into this land, and then they kind of run out of food. And rather than saying, well, God has brought me here, and I'm going to wave and trust God, he goes off down to Egypt. And what a disaster that turned out to be. As a result of that, they come back with, presumably, somebody that had been given to look and tend to look after Sarah, because Sarah was put into the harem when they got down into Egypt. But as they come out, they come out with this servant that had presumably looked after Sarah there, this young lady by the name of Hagar. And you know the rest. The whole of that was a lack of trust in God, saying, well, Lord, I know you've led me this far, but now we've got a real problem. I need to do something. I need to help out. This week on Monday, I got up. I read scriptures I always do at the start of the day. And there is something that really just spoke to me, again, just telling me to trust, to wait. And I then got an email that Diana very kindly sent me, which basically reiterated, let God do the moving. Don't step out yourself. This is exactly what we're reading here. Straight after reading that, I read the Oswald Chambers, Mark Moses Highest, for that particular day. And once again, it said the same thing. And I really felt convicted as I kind of pretty much already was there. And I rang this company uh, locally that had been uh, dilly-dallying over this job offer. And I rang them and said, I'm not going to take it. It's the most ridiculous decision I could have made from a personal and financial perspective. But I know it was right. And I had such a peace after doing it. And later that day, I had a conversation with a director who I'd worked with previously in BT, who's very interested in the whole telecoms thing. That might go somewhere. I don't know. That's of the Lord. I then had Pete pass on to me a potential job opportunity with Wycliffe Bible Translators. I don't know whether that's right. I had a phone call. I sent an application off on Monday night straight away after and got that. They replied on Tuesday saying, we really want to speak to you. So I had a conversation, went well. Don't know what's going to happen. Unfortunately, they're not doing anything until about the 7th of uh, um, March, and then it's going to be another week before they do interviews and things. But, you know, look, it's in the Lord's hands. So two things immediately kind of came back, and I don't know if either of those things would be the right thing. But the principle remains the same, just as it was with Abraham, with Moses, with all these people. It's the Lord that has to build the house or the labor is in vain. Consider Moses, for example. In fact, let's just go in order. I've got these here just quickly. Jacob's 20 years he was up with Uncle Laban. 20 years. Wondering if God was going to fulfill the promises that he made. And even when he comes back, he's panicking. What's going to happen when he meets Esau? Well, it was fine, wasn't it? There was no problem at all. He didn't know that. And Moses, Moses has got this kind of calling to deliver the people. So one day he sets out to try and do it one by one, and he kills an Egyptian, and the next day it's found, it's discovered, and he ends up fleeing. Forty years he waits until God says, right, now we're going to do it my way. So it has to be the Lord, in the Lord's timing. And sometimes we can wait what seems to be forever. David. As a young man, was out on the hillside one day, and suddenly somebody comes running to him, David, David, we're all waiting for you. What's going on? But Samuel the prophet's arrived. 
And he, he's looked at all your brothers, and none of those are good enough. And David goes, yeah, that's true. And David comes back, and he's anointed to be king of Israel. And then he goes to take some supplies to the front line because there's this Philistine problem that they've got. And David hears all about this and he's brought before the king. And David's thinking, Lord, this is incredible. You anointed me and here I am before the king. And what happens? Well, David then spends a huge part of his life in exile, being hunted by Saul, threatened to be killed. David ends up pretty much on his own other than having God. And of course, ultimately, God does fulfill that promise. David does sit on the throne. And what David learned in that time, we have so much of it, his heart poured out in Psalms for us. Job, another character. Yet though he slay me, will I trust him, Job said. Job said that he knew that his Redeemer lived, and one day he would stand on the earth in his flesh, you see, God calls us to trust him. And I think Micah 7.7 is a verse that we should all make a, a personal verse, a memory verse. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. It's a promise. Hebrews 13.7 just speaks of these characters in the Bible, and it says that their faith we should follow. Psalm 44, verse 6 is another one that I happened to read this morning. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. The earlier part of that speaks of the way that the Lord led them into the land of Canaan and delivered them. It was God that did it. Again, don't trust in your own bow. Don't trust in your strength and your ability. It's not like the world. I know the world ways of doing things. Well, you've got to do something. No, it's not that way with God because God wants the glory. And God wants you to learn to walk with him and to trust him. And people will tell you, and I've had people suggest to me, but, but you ought to do this. Or, Have you done that? You to... Yeah, I know they're the logical things, but that's not God's way. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemies. Micah carries on now. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. God is promising vindication here. I will bear the indignation of the Lord or of trusting the Lord. You know, I said a moment ago that people sometimes look at you and question why are you prepared to trust God? Micah says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord or of waiting on or trusting in the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. Micah was under no illusion of his own standing before God. He was a sinner that God was showing grace and mercy to you. And God will execute judgment for him. Ultimately, that judgment occurred at the cross where his sins were washed away and he was cleansed. And he says, he will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. What a lovely picture of our own lives in this. Then she that is my enemy, now again, Babylon seemed to be in view here, shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said unto me, where is the Lord thy God? People may say that. Well, where is your God? Why doesn't he do something? Well, you wait and see. God has never failed and never will fail. God will never leave us or forsake us. He will keep his promises. Shame shall cover her, which said unto me, where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her, 
Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. Rather than me being defeated, my enemies who doubt God, who question God, they will be exposed. <laughs> and as will all replacement theology, by the way. There are some commentators that try and shoehorn this into the church. It doesn't work. These are promises made to Israel. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the church can understand these. We can use these things in our own life and walk. But these are specific promises to Israel that God will not abandon Israel. In the day that thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. Adam Clark again just says, this refers to Jerusalem, the decree to the purpose of God to deliver the people into captivity. This shall be far removed, God having purpose their return. So, you know, just speaking of the walls of Israel being rebuilt and the, the whole idea of the decree that the, the judgment was going to come upon them and it did come upon them will one day be completely forgotten. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river and from the sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Okay, and it echoes a prophecy in Isaiah 19, we'll look at it in a second, and of Micah chapter 2 as well. Back in Micah chapter 2, he spoke of the nations, including Assyria, coming up to Jerusalem. And that's the idea that's been spoken of. The river Euphrates to the river, Uni- the river Nile in uh, Egypt, the Mediterranean Sea, the Red Sea, Mount Ararat, which is not the one in Turkey, that's the, the ark last landed on the mountains of Arak, and they traveled to the plain in Shinar. So it's further over, it's somewhere in Iran uh, area. So the other side of Assyria, really. And of course, to Mount Sinai, not the one in the Sinai Peninsula, that's the wrong one, but the one down in Arabia, where Paul says it is. In that day, there shall be a highway out of Egypt, this is from Isaiah 19, to Assyria. And the Assyrians shall come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. During the millennial reign, God is going to do something incredible. And he's speaking of what is going to happen. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein. In other words, God will still bring this judgment. That is going to happen for the fruit of their doings. Feed thy people with the rod, thy, uh, uh, thy flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitary in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Now, verse 13, first of all, it can be either taken as looking forward to what will happen, or a lot of commentators think it really should be prophetically looking back to what has happened. The land has been desolate because it's prophetic. It's looking from the future backwards. The land has been desolate, but God is going to bring this restoration. The people will come back to the land. They'll be in blessing. And the rod that is mentioned there, feed thy people with the rod, it's not the rod of correction or affliction. Uh, The Hebrew indicates it's a shepherd's crook. It's leading them, feeding them. And by the way, this reference here, feed them in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, That can never be applied to the church because the church never fed in Bashan or Gilead. It has to be specifically to do with Israel. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. Notice that statement. According to the days. Think of how it was when you came out of Egypt. Well, that's how it's going to be, and even better. The nation shall see and be confounded. (laughs) They are going to be somewhat confounded, aren't they? All those anti-Semitic nations out there. All those people that would love to see Israel wiped off the face of the earth. The nations shall see and be confounded 
at all their might. And they shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They know what to say. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of whom? Of the Lord our God. And shall fear because of thee. See, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's in view here. Again, Psalm 44, verse 7 says, But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. So in considering Micah's future, he thinks of his own name now and makes this declaration. Who is a God like unto thee? Do you remember that's, that's what Micah's name, who is like God? Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? What an incredible statement for someone in the Old Testament before the cross and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. This is the paradox of mercy and justice. And of course, the only way that God can remain just and yet show mercy is if if atonement is made for sin by another. And of course, it speaks of the cross. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Notice it's a declaration that God has made. God has sworn, made this absolute unbreakable promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And notice that statement. It kind of sounds a little bit like Psalm 102, doesn't it? They will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 102 just says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. And that brings us to an end of this book. Just a few comments. The lessons we learned from this book, well, who is like our God? It's a book of restoration. It's a book that promises vindication as well. And it's a book that calls for God's people to walk with him so his blessings can overflow. It's a book that says, trust the Lord through the present trials. That's what the Lord was saying to Micah. And I believe that's what the Lord says to us now, because the Lord himself has sworn. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts. Help us to learn these lessons, lessons of trust in you, that we would love justice, that we would, in our inside person, Lord, that we would have that right values, the right attitude toward things, that we would look at things in a just way. But the Lord also, in our dealings with our fellow men, that we would show mercy in the same way that you show mercy. But most importantly, Lord, we ask by your grace that you would help us to walk with you, to walk in the way. For Lord, we know there is blessing there. There may be days of darkness. There may be days that we don't see clearly, but your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So may we walk in faith, trusting you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.